0: I'm talking I've been asked to talk about Black History Month Um, I'm sure you're all aware there is a Black History Month whether you agree there should be one it's another thing what I'm going to do is talk about someone called Marcus Garvey for me he's one of the most important people of the 20th century so I'm going to explain to you why I think that is why um, why I think that is and I'm going to and, and what legacy what his legacy is and what people like myself and others have tried to build upon so that's what I'm going to talk about today and hopefully you'll find something of interest, something you can take away from that within all of that. That's myself apart from I do a lot of business coaching and I write a few books and these are some of the books I write. Some of them have to do with Islamic finance, some to do with business and the one I'll talk a lot about today is this one, it's called Call of the Twice Removed. And I don't know if you can make out the two ships. So the Twice Removed are really people like me. Their ancestors were taken from Africa to the Americas, in, this case, in my case Jamaica, the Caribbean. And then our parents came from the Caribbean and came to Europe, came to Britain. So it's like the two removals. So we call ourselves the twice removed. So my book is really saying these are the lessons we've learned in looking at history, and looking at Marcus Garvey, and all things you know about Malcolm X, and all the, the movements that have happened over the centuries and decades like my take on where we've got to so I'll mention a bit about the book as we go as we go on but I'll start by talking about who Marcus Garvey was and why I think he was so important Um, and because when we talk about black history a lot of it tends to dwell around the the legacy of the slave trade racism um, the colonialism so all these sort of things of exploitation so I'll talk a little bit about how people really exploit each other and then after there's what we can do about that if we want to do something about it what we can do about it where I think we should concentrate our efforts so this is Marcus Garvey and he said something that a lot of people have repeated in different ways he said hungry men have no respect for law, authority or human life so that's just something I want to bear in, bear in mind as we go forward that it's true, that when people are hungry, they, you know, you'll do what you need to get the next meal. You won't, you'll break the law, you won't respect authority, and it's something that's happened throughout the ages. So I just want you to bear that in mind as we go forward, that that was this sort of background. Hungry men will always break the law and do what they need to do to survive. I mean, men and women, yeah? <laughs> women don't escape so this is a little bit of the timeline of Marcus Garvey the one thing I always remember about Marcus Garvey straight away is that he was born in 1887 and died in 1940 because in Jamaica he was on the 50 cent piece and it always had his name and year of birth and death, so that's an easy one for me to remember but I'll, I'll say a few things about his life so you can understand what, his life, uh, what was going on during his lifetime uh, So he was born in the parish of St Anne in Jamaica a small town, he grew up next to um, in fact he grew up next to two white families, right? So for him growing up, he didn't know as a young child, he never knew anything about racism and so on. And there were the families, the children next door on both sides he used to play with. And there's one particular girl he was very close with. And at one point she disappeared. And he, he, and he asked why she disappeared. And it was because the family thought they were too close as youngsters and they might get too close when they got older. So better to send her to England to stop that happening. And that was his first brushed understanding that there was something called racism so he grew up with that now without understanding becoming a bit clearer and he saw how society worked in jamaica because remember it was still a british colony at that time so if you were a white person in jamaica you would have been either in a good paid job or a landowner or running a business at that point right? so he ended up moving to kingston the capital of jamaica started working as a printer in the print works and at some point he noticed the conditions the conditions that people were working in were not too good. So he organized a strike for better conditions and sort of better pay and so on. And not like now where people in unions are protected, he was just fired. They said, you're a troublemaker. And he continued to try and represent the sort of working classes were. But um, he was seen as a troublemaker and eventually he moved to America. But he, in fact, he went around the Caribbean and South America and he was, he was championing you know, workers' rights and so on around these countries and he got to America and he founded something called the Universal Negro Improvement Association. Uh, So a black uh, organization to improve black people's state, if you like, in, in the Americas and elsewhere. This got to up to 4 million members. So not a small organization. It got up to 4 million members in there at one point. And it got so big and so much money was coming in from fees and dues that even countries, representatives of different countries came there looking for loans from the UNIA now we think about um, what are the big companies, Microsoft and and Facebook and so on, but even them don't have countries coming to them to look for loans and borrow money to build their countries, so this organization that he started became that big and influential and they used to dress dress in military attire and things like that and uh, big hats and so on, so they were a real spectacle so if you know like the uh, Nation of Islam and many other groups based themselves on that, on how the, they modeled themselves on the UNIA. So they launched a newspaper, which was sold all over the world, called The Negro World. It became a really big selling newspaper. So that was how they got the message out. And he launched something called The Black Star Line. He based it on, the name was based on The White Star Line, which a company called Cunard, uh, which owned oh, at the cunard They had like the QE2 and these big, plush uh, ships. And he decided to... And then an the Irish company had the Green Star Line and he decided to have the Black Star Line. What a lot of people think is that the Black Star Line was about taking people back to Africa. But it wasn't. It was just a commercial shipping company to move goods around the Caribbean, South America, Central America. So... Yeah, so he had the Black Star Line. And his... What he wanted to do, Garvey, was to... He thought that um, you know, all these countries are being run by the British and the French and so on in Africa and the Caribbean, the Dutch, everybody. He wanted a free African country run by Africans as a sort of focal point for Africans across the world. And he decided on Liberia. Liberia, is a, Liberia in West Africa is a place where a lot of freed slaves from the States, America, went there to set up. So it had a, it had a sort of track record. So they started making links with Liberia invested in, in Liberia, and the Liberian government at the time had tried to get a loan from, I think, the American government, um, who wouldn't lend them the money. So they went to Garvey and the UNIA, went to Garvey for this loan, uh, I forget how many million, to rebuild their country. So this organisation, this grassroots organisation, was able to give a loan to this uh, big country. And it was called the... I call it the Liberian Construction Loan Programme. So they developed this whole loan program to develop Liberia and they set up all kinds of commercial contracts and people were traveling from the Caribbean, from America, from all over going to Liberia. And so during that time, when he had, um, with the Black Star Line, he, Garvey wasn't a businessman, But he'd raise the money, people would subscribe, buy shares through the post and so on. And they brought about three ships. Uh, Apparently they paid a lot more than they should have paid. Six times or so the money they should have paid for the ships. But it started as a business, but eventually ran into trouble because they started to lose money. Part of it due to incompetence, part of it due to corruption, and part of it due to, they had um, FBI spies planted in the organization to bring it down. So even from that time, That's always been a technique to put people in there. So that's the Black Star Line. So when the Black Star Line collapsed, one of the things that happened was that Garvey was sent, well, before that, the actual Liberia situation also went funny because the Liberia government decided to, to instead of honoring the contracts they had with the UNIA, they decided to get in bed with an American company, I've got the name there somewhere, Yeah, the Firestone Plantation Company. It was to do with um, making rubber and stuff like that. So they went against their agreement because they were bribed and so on and left Garvey's organization in the lurch. And then the shipping line collapsed and the government in America decided to charge him with mail fraud. They said he did something fraudulent. What they charged him with was the fact that he bought three ships, was going to buy a new ship and they were going to buy one ship and they decided to buy another ship But on the documentation, he had a picture of the first ship. No difference between the ships, but the wrong picture. So they said that was fraud. When people are out to get you, they'll find something to get you with. So so he was was sentenced to prison in America for fraud. And um, eventually he was given some sort of a pardon, not a full pardon. And he was told to leave the country. And he decided to, and he went on tour, He he left America, came to Europe, went around Europe, Switzerland, Britain, lots of places. He was well known in these places and um, eventually ended up in Jamaica um, and got involved in politics and so on and um, formed a political party. He came back to London and died in London in Paddington in London. So that's his sort of life history of Garvey. Um, I'll continue a little bit before I go on. but in a sense if to understand Garvey is to understand also what was going on so he built up this massive organization which itself was a big people saw that as a threat can build built this massive organization of mainly black people 4 million people raising all these funds it was seen as a threat by a lot of people hence the infiltration but to understand what was going on and what else sort of influenced Garvey and who's taken from him it's kind of understand why I say he's one of the most important people in the 20th century one was because of the organization and not just how black people perceived it, but how outsiders perceived it. So it was well known across the African continent. So later on, you get the sort of in the 1950s, 60s, there are all these uh, independence movements. So you have big names like Kenyatta in Kenya and Kwame Nkrumah in Krumene, Ghana, and all these all these names and, um, across Africa fighting for independence, and they all consider themselves Garveyites. So, all these people consider themselves to be. Garveyites in some way and kind of to situate him emancipation, I don't know if you understand the term emancipation it's to do with freedom from slavery and remember he was born in 1887 so around 50 years before that emancipation happened in Jamaica so still fresh in people's minds emancipation is when you're given your freedom from slavery but what happened before that people were given a kind of half-emancipation. They said you could be free as a slave, but you had to do an apprenticeship. Anybody here doing an apprenticeship of any sorts? Anybody hoping to? <laughs> One maybe. Well, this is a different kind of apprenticeship. This apprenticeship meant you had to work for free for your former slave master for six years. That's what they meant, apprenticeship. That's for some reason. So to be free, you still had to give six years free labor, as it were. But that was abolished in 1838, so that's why they call it full emancipation. So, Garvey's sort of grown up with people remembering all that. He was also, if you understand the, the church, in those days the church was really the meeting spot for everything, everything happened from the church. All the big speakers, all the, all the, all the big gatherings happened from the church, whether you're a Christian or not. So, he was well known in the churches in Jamaica, but also particularly in America, he went around all the churches. That's where he would have done lots of his speaking from the churches. And, but at the same time, a lot of a lot of Muslims also um, followed him, and he had links with lots of Muslims. And also, many people see him as the father of Rastafarianism. So, although although Haile Selassie is you know particularly rated if you like in the in the Rasta movement, he was seen as what he was teaching, almost like the father of Rastafarianism so that's part of his influence today because you know obviously the Rasta faith is, is, is massive today he was also around um, he would have known the history of what we call free villages and in a, uh, after emancipation black people were allowed to buy land in the Caribbean so it took the churches again the, the Baptist church and particularly people from here um, white Christians from here Baptist people going to Jamaica in particular, and they would help buy land, and then sell it to black people. So that's how a lot of people got started with the land um, in Jamaica, even my own family. That's where they would have started to get their, their land from. In that time too, I don't know how much, <coughs> if you study here about Freud and Marx, the, the teachings of Sigmund Freud would have been big during his lifetime, and would have been coming to the fore in terms of um, what they're calling sort of like psychoanalysis. And the way we think now and analyze everything, It really came out of this man Freud and Marx, Karl Marx was the one who talked about socialism and the workers versus the elite and so on. So all these movements were growing in the 20th century when Garvey was around and he would have taken from them and tried to um, not manipulate them but use them, um, digest them and use them. And of course um, the states, America would have been very segregated. And Black Wall Street. The people uh, heard about Black Wall Street. They call Black Wall Street. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. This is the What's the film? Wolves of Wall Street. Wall Street. Yeah, that Wall Street, like the city of London here. It's where all the the trading goes on. The um, you know, shares and stocks and all the things like that. And um, oh <coughs> all these things <coughs> where people are making millions in the 1920s. Before that they had what was called a Black Wall Street. They had a few places like that. One particular place, I think it was Oklahoma, called Greenwood. And they also were making so much money being made in these, in these towns, that again, countries were sending diplomats there to organize loans from this Black Wall Street. You get now. So and when you hear about lynching, you hear about these lynchings that used to take place in America and so on, where you get black people being strung up for different reasons most of the people strung up were actually business people even though they always say it's for some petty thing, they always say it's because of someone did something, someone saw to the wall, looked at the woman in Wall Street they claimed that some guy said, something a black guy said something to a woman in a lift a white woman <clears throat> so a whole group of white people came armed and started shooting up the whole of this place called Greenwood and this is America, you know, so of course everybody's got guns so the black people are shooting back over two days and it's a running battle, people are dying. What they call the National Guard comes in on the side of the whites and it's more killing. They said airplanes came over and dropped petrol on it. The whole place burnt down, this Black Wall Street. And it's happened more than once. It's happened more than once, particularly in America. So all this is what's going on during Garvey's lifetime. So so when you understand that, to build something with four million followers, members, not even followers, during that time, with all that going on, and the problems he would have been trying to address, just to give you the the influences on it. <coughs> so that's that's why, if you like, I'm saying the importance of Marcus Garvey is because so many modern politicians, um, uh, people of the 20th century, looked to Garvey, were influenced by Garvey, um, <coughs> still talk about Garvey. People who call themselves Pan-Africanists still look up to Marcus Garvey. That's why I say he's one of the most important people of the 20th century. But, again, when we talk about Black History Month, I said often it's cited in that about how people have been exploited, you know, after slavery, racism, all these things. So, I wanted to talk about how, if we, in a sense, get a little bit deeper into how people really are exploited. Um, i give my take on that. So hopefully it's just to um, just give you another way of looking at things to see what's going on. And I've got here currency contracts and markets. Currency, what you buy things with. Traditionally people, you know, I've got a book, I want your pen, we can swap. You've got a chicken, I've got some rice, we can swap. People can do that. That's, so barter was the sort of first form of currency, swapping. Then later on, sometimes you've got to, I don't want your pen, you don't want my, you know, but you want my book. I don't want your pen. So we need to do something else. So that's where the currency, the money comes in. Sometimes people use rice as currency or something else. But traditionally in almost every country in the world over thousands of years, currency has been gold and silver, sometimes copper as well. And gold, because you know gold, precious people, it's like it's built in with people that we have an attraction to gold. You have to work to get gold. You have to either mine it, you know, and then melt it and all these things you have to work to get gold. So that's why gold has always been this currency that people have had. And so what happens now, so then what happened in the story, if you like, of gold, is that people were walking around, buying and selling, using gold, and you'd have a goldsmith, person who would deal with gold, he would say to people, he would say to people, the goldsmith, would say to people, Why walk around with all that gold in your pocket, particularly richer people? Let me look after your gold for you. Straightforward. He'd hold the gold for people, he'd charge them some money, some rent for holding the gold. So, what would happen is that people would, when they go and do a transaction, instead of going to the goldsmith, taking their gold, they would just give a receipt and say, Here's a receipt, go to the goldsmith and take some of my gold. Tell him I said so, I've written a note for it. So, that became sort of like your first check. So that's one thing that's going on. The other thing that's happening with the goldsmith, particularly the crooked ones, they realize that not everybody came back for the gold at the same time. People would come at different times for their gold. So they start to lend out other people's gold. They would say, I'll take your gold and lend it to someone at interest, and hopefully it's all paid back before you get back. And if you did come, they show you somebody else's gold. So yeah, there's your gold, but it all look the same. So that's what a lot of the goldsmiths started doing. So they were making money on other people's money. Eventually what happened, they got caught out a lot of the time because too many people came back for their gold at the same time. The gold wasn't there. People killed the bankers or chased them out of town. Regular occurrence happened time and time and time again. Like what people, people call a run on the bank. So that, that is really the start of banking and paper money. <coughs> and what happened was, if you like, if you take the continent of Africa, with all those resources going out. <clears throat> Previously, they sold it for gold. Eventually, they are pretty much forced to start taking these dollars and pounds, paper money. The thing about when you take paper money, the person who prints it has the power. You negotiate, I say I'm going to pay you a hundred pounds. You say a thousand, I just print some more. So that was what was happening. So people were selling their resources still today for this paper money. And paper money, because of the way it's printed, is always losing value. So when we have inflation, it's because more and more money is being printed. So <coughs> that is one of the principal causes why so many countries with resources are actually poor. Because what they're selling their, their goods for is actually something not really worth anything. And of course, that trickles down to the whole country. The other thing, Another sort of cause of poverty are contracts, fair contracts, unfair contracts. Um, The terms of an agreement. People often force, a bit like, you know, telephone contracts, mobile telephone contracts. We don't really have a say in the contract. You know, if we go around, what's it now, two years now a contract is these days? Like 24 months, whatever it is. We don't really have a say. None of us go up to the, T-Mobile and saying, mm, I don't really like that, I'll take just a four-month contract. No, you're, we're forced to take what contract they offer us. That's really unfair. Contracts are supposed to be negotiated. And again, what's happened, well, I'll give you the story of a man called Mark Rich. Mark Rich was in the States, American. He committed this massive, massive tax fraud, the biggest tax fraud ever seen in America at the time. And the, um, what do they call him, Was the IRS, everybody's after him. And for them, it was money they never heard of. What he did, he ran off to Israel and just stayed there. And they couldn't touch him there. But then he set up a mining company, mining copper in Zambia. And that company, um, I forget what the name of the company now, it's changed its name. But that company was supposed to have a deal with the Zambian government that they would mine the, they would mine the copper, and they would split the money they make from what they sell it for, but what did that company do? They set up another company they owned, and instead of selling maybe 100 pounds a ton to them, they sold it for 10 pounds a ton to their own company. So they split the 10 pounds rather than the 100 pounds. So those are unjust contracts, but that is really what's gone on across, particularly across Africa, the mining. Those kinds of contracts, and again, some of these countries, it's costing them. It's actually costing them to keep the mines open. Mm -hmm. They're they're the ones paying for the health services. They're the ones paying for everything, the electricity. And the big mining companies are actually not, you know, they're just making money. So these are unjust contracts. So I really just pointed out to you that sometimes what makes people poor, the currency, sometimes unjust contracts because people are working in places with, with no facilities, with no backup, no healthcare, because these countries are all about greed, these companies. Thirdly, I'll just mention markets um, again with that, with that copper mine really the government should be selling their own copper but they've been locked into these contracts where the company is selling the, the copper and people talk often about fair trade people know the fair trade buying fair trade goods the fair trade movement the fair trade movement says <coughs> instead of paying the they always talk about the, the Ghanaian cocoa farmer instead of paying him 85p a kilo for cocoa we'll pay him 87p that's a fair price. That's, that's the fair trade movement. And a lot of people buy, make sure they buy fair trade. Um, but in fact, really what's fairer is to let people come and sell in your market. If people come into your market and sell, they'll get their own price. And there's a thing that people always say, you, you hear it all the time, sure. People say, if you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. If you teach a man to fish, you feed him for life. People repeat that all the time. Right? You don't just give a man a place, teach him to fish, you feed him for, for life. But I, I add to that that if you actually give a man a place to sell his fish, he'll look after his family and his community and build schools and all these things. So people, if people have access to the marketplace um, and to making money, they will look after themselves, their family, their community. And this is the same in every country. We had discussions about it. I live in Norwich, in Norfolk country. And we were talking to different parties, Labour Party, Green Party, Conservatives, about doing market projects up there. Because that was about, they realised that if you have markets that anybody can access free of charge, they will, they can make money. It gets unemployment. It gets rid of unemployment. Right. So, if you allow people, if you give people places to sell without charging them money, licences they will make money for themselves. So I just wanted to put those in your head, something to go away with. That The causes for problems you have today are not always what people say. So people talk about um, the green issues, the environment, and often they talk about, um, oh, people in these third world countries are chopping down trees. They're not thoughtful. But remember, we said, hungry people make certain decisions. They don't care about the environment, they're hungry. They need to chop down that tree in order to make a living. Whereas these big organizations where they chop down is a thousand times bigger than that. Massive places. So it's just understanding that it's because of the contracts and the currency that people are poor and when poor people make bad decisions that affect the environment, it goes back to that. So that's what I wanted to just uh, put, leave that in your minds. So again, to show you that all history is related, we're all tied in. The history we're talking about, everybody's tied into it. So. What Garvey was talking about, Marcus Garvey was talking about and fighting against, it affects all of us, whether we know it or not. The, the system we're all a part of, you know, it affects all of us. But things were not always like that. So in terms of putting things right, the lessons I'll talk about in my book, one of the things we found out, if something is good for black people, it's got to be good for white people. Actually, if something is good, it's going to be good for everybody. So. Yeah, so if you're an activist wanting to put something right, the test that what you're doing is really good is that everybody will benefit from it, right? Not just one set of people. So I'm just gonna talk a little bit about what those things might be. Go <coughs> well, um, And when I talk about um, an activist, is someone who really wants to, you know, actively do something to make their, you know, the benefit of their community, where they live and the people they see as part of their community. And in a sense, I, all, I, I talk about entrepreneurs, people in business. An entrepreneur wants to do the same thing. They want to do business in a way that affects where they live and affects the people they live. So an entrepreneurs and activists have something very similar about them. So an activist, if you want to put something right, you have to be thinking about social and financial justice. And when I say social justice, um, <clears throat> you know, from, the courts, making the courts fair, that, you know, there's not this leeway that one person can get 100 years for the same thing that somebody else gets a community service war, like that, things like that are not justice. <clears throat> so I have to tackle those things. Also, if people are in, in if you see the music industry, you find out that um, often a small man tries to take a big uh, artist or big recording company to court and say they've stolen my lyrics. Very rarely, once in a blue moon does a small guy win. And when it's the other way around, when it's the big guy taking the small guy to court, they always win. Right, so these things are really fundamentally just unjust, Is where the system is. So that's activists want to challenge that, find some way of challenging that. Um, Let me go through, I've got family values, commercial activity, I'll talk about this from my book actually. I'll just talk about the, a little bit how, how personally um, I probably addressed these in the book I, I've written. So it's just a way of seeing how people, modern today, some people are thinking about these things. In the book I've written something called, it's an interview, called Interview with Ralston X. It's really based on Malcolm X. My take on if Malcolm X was alive today and I interviewed him, what he would say. Um, a lot of people got upset with me because they read it and thought it was a real interview and said, where can I get this guy, where can I meet him? So, um, in a sense, I enjoyed that they thought that, but it was they thought I was being deceitful. But it's based on things that I read and other people that I mixed together. So, Rastonet is talking about the politics today and the things we've just talked about. That if we are going to be an activist, we have to address the politics of the day, particularly um, any injustices, right? And especially things like, I said, the legal system and other things. We have to be someone who wants to tackle injustice where we see it, at local and at national level. For the common the women, um, these movements were always movements of men and women. Even though it may be women's, uh, men's names we see, they're always movements of men and women. There wasn't this sort of um, setup where it's like one against the other. And we have to understand that things are not always the way things are now. So, one of the emotional issues that people always talk about is polygamy. You know, where a man has more than one wife. But remember, this is something that's always been, you know, across Africa and other places, it's been practiced. So, we have to open up our minds to say, well, why was that? Right? So, just things and realize that people thought differently with how things operated. People, just like with uh, democracy, the vote, we think, if we're going to run any system, we should have a vote. But remember, when the British were running Jamaica and all these other countries, there was no democracy. They sent a governor, a governor general, to just run the country, right? There was no democracy. Um, Many places have had kings and queens with no democracy. So I'm just saying, we have to think, when we look at history, that what we see today is not always the case. Sometimes when we're thinking about fixing problems today, we have to look beyond how we see things today and say, actually, what really did happen in history across the world and how do people address it and not always be restricted by what's going on today. And I talked about the market uh, and gold as a currency. So really, uh, finally the last thing, just talk about Garvey was a very spiritual man. he never really said he was a christian uh he never said he was muslim he never said he was rasta you know he, he didn't want to alienate anybody especially as he used the church and so on. he never alienated anybody people had different views of what he died as and so on um but what was very clear is that if you take the big corporations what motivates them is obviously pretty much greed and growing and making more and more money the only thing for um, Garvey and many others, it has to be something spiritual. So if people don't have any sort of spiritual guidance, if you like, or something that moves them spiritually, people won't do good things. So we can't uh, divorce spirituality, I think, from doing good works. I a lot people have no reason to do it. Because the system says, really, you set up a company, your only job is to grow and make money. You know, so if your test goes, you must take over more and more stores. And I, uh, one of the companies was, uh, that had been reported on the news recently, and they said, oh, they didn't grow from last year. The sales remained stagnant at, you know, 27 billion or whatever it was. And that was a problem. Why should it be a problem that you only make the same 27 billion you made last year? So the mindset is that if you're doing business, you must keep growing and become massive. Um, even if you have your own company, you'll do it working for yourself and you're making, I don't know, whatever's, you're happy with 50,000 a year, whatever it is. People can't help but say, wow, you could could grow further if you do this and if you do that. It's just a mindset we have. So I'm saying we have to have something, be grounded and open our hearts in a sense to be um, activists. So that's really, I want to say the the legacy of Marcus Garvey is that he delved into all of this. He had a, a really good insight as to what was going on. And the other thing is that they were ambitious that I think sometimes we... Can we conceive of uh, setting up an organization with four million people? It's something we don't even think about, four million people, it's like, it's beyond. still these guys without Facebook, I'm not talking about four million, what do you call it? When people like you or join you on Facebook. Followers. Followers, yeah. So not four million followers, you know, but four people paying membership. People sending, you know, not paying by bank transfer. People, you know, be going to meetings and paying or sending it by the post. Four million people. So, I'm just saying, these guys um, and Black Wall Street, these guys had uh, some really big ambitions. So, if we can take from that, you know, whatever, the sky's the limit, I'm saying. So, that's really what I wanted to say, and hopefully, you got something with that. And if you have any questions or anyone want to add something, I'm happy. Gordon, okay?